You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's over. You almost don't have to hear all about Justin Trudeau's wonderful trip to Washington. Mr. Trudeau goes to Washington! And that's just the media. But you are going to hear about it from me tonight. I told you when we started this show that what I want to do is not just talk about the headlines. The reason it's called Beyond the News is we want to go beyond the clips, beyond the sound bites, beyond what is far too often the surface level that you get in the news. Justin Trudeau has made uh, a number of speeches. He's taken shots at American political leaders that he really shouldn't have taken. He took them uh, again at another Canada 2020 event. Notice that these Canada 2020 events have both happened now. Notice that the Liberal Party fundraised off of the state visit to Washington, as it kept being called, even though it's not the state. Fine. The Americans call it that. He is our head of government, not our head of state. Although I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure that we would all just elect him king. We'd make him king if we could. If there was a vote in the press gallery, I think it would just be the Trudeau dynasty for the rest of eternity in this country. But anyway, the visit is over. The two Canada 2020 events have happened. And how many stories have you seen in the mainstream media about this cozy relationship between a lobby group founded by liberal lobbyists, this think tank founded by liberal lobbyists that was able to parlay their friendship at a very personal level with the prime minister into not only getting into the state dinner, but into being part of it. They're both making money off of the state dinner for the Liberal Party and for Canada 2020. Doesn't that deserve some kind of uh, questioning? Doesn't that deserve some kind of discussion, some kind of exploration by the media? No, well, I guess not. Based on the fact that you're not seeing stories, even though the conservatives have sent letters to the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner, they've raised this in the House of Commons, They've raised it in front of the media. They've sent news releases. No stories on that. But don't worry. Don't worry. They are on the case because Cheryl Gallant, a conservative from Renfrew Nepissing Pembroke, well, she had this fundraising link in an email about Easter hams. And the email uh, had uh, Corporal Nathan Cirillo in it and discussed a link between terrorism and refugees. So they're all over that. Don't worry, especially the state broadcaster with their billion dollars. They're all over that. So is BuzzFeed. So we're safe. But you're never going to hear about Trudeau and Canada 2020 and the fundraising and the cozy relationship and things that should at least be questioned. Maybe it turns out there's nothing. Maybe it turns out that it's all on the up and up. But would you know that? Would you really have a clue about that? No. So between 8 and 9, 
I'm actually going to bring you several extended clips of Justin Trudeau's speech today from one of the Canada 2020 events. And I'm going to go through them, not not from a mean point of view. I'm not the mean, angry guy. I'm the guy that sits here at night and talks to you and plays music and has fun, and I invite you to join and do the same. And between 9 and 10, I'm going to ask you to join me and ask me questions. Because I'm going to explain a lot between 8 and 9. I'm going to explain a lot about Justin Trudeau's philosophy and what informs the comments that he makes, where he's wrong, and at times, by the way, some of the comments he makes, one, one in particular about the middle class that he keeps pushing forward that I'm going to deconstruct, I often hear conservatives make the same argument, and I'll explain why they're wrong. And if you want to challenge me on any of that, third hour. Have at her. You want to call up and ask me where I come from politically or what have you? You want to talk about political philosophy, what have you? Third hour. We can call in then. But between 8 and 9, in the second hour, I'm going to sit here. We will have at least one guest. That's uh, Patrick Moore, former uh, co-founder of Greenpeace, who is a an intelligent environmentalist that doesn't just feed you talking points, but actually looks at, oh, what's that? What is it they keep telling us to look at? What is it they keep telling us to believe in? Oh, oh, the word's right there. Yeah, the science. Yeah. Um, he's a scientist, and, and he's going to discuss one of Trudeau's talking points with me. Before we get to that, though, I mentioned the other day about Canada starting to fund UNRWA again. UNRWA is the acronym for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. This is an organization that was founded in the early 1950s to deal with Palestinian refugees. And I'm sure at one point they did a lot of good work. But they have been effectively taken over by Hamas, which is a banned terrorist organization in Canada. Hamas controls much of how this organization works. And UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, is essentially used to funnel money towards organizations that organizations that will benefit Hamas in some way. So you look at the, the hospitals, the schools, and so on. That money comes through the UN, through this organization. It got so bad that the Harper Conservatives cut off funding. We used to give about $15 million a year, and they said, you know what, we're going to cut that funding. We're going to give it to other organizations that actually feed people, that actually house people, that look after humanitarian needs. Because they were tired of this organization being used for political ends. What kind of political ends? Well, when Hamas was carrying out its mortar attack campaign a few years ago, I think that was in 2014, they kept finding that the Hamas mortar locations were being set up by UN-funded and run schools and hospitals. Sometimes the arms caches would be inside those places. So these are schools and hospitals funded by the UN, but they're being used by Hamas to store weapons because, well, you can't bomb a school. Well, you can't bomb a hospital. So they would always use those as cover and sometimes as storage locations. 
So there was a very good reason for us to cut funding off to this organization. Well, as I discussed the other day, they've, Trudeau and his uh, people have decided to give the money back. $15 million a year it will cost Canadian taxpayers to fund an organization that is very close to a terrorist organization that provides cover for a terrorist organization. That should be concerning enough. Now new information has come out showing that last October, it was actually the day after our federal election, that they were holding a, an event in a school with children under the age of 10 celebrating, celebrating the stabbing of Jews. Because Hamas had this campaign. Go, they were telling people, go out and stab Jews. Go into Israel and just randomly stab people. We can cause problems for them. Do this. At a UN-run school, a UN-funded school, they were celebrating this because they are that close to Hamas that when Hamas says go, they do. Can you imagine at any school with young children, them celebrating the stabbing of anyone? Doesn't matter who, what. You're, sta- you're celebrating the stabbing of individuals. So there's that problem with our return to funding. Unrun, remember, Justin Trudeau made a big deal about Canada being back at the United Nations. Justin Trudeau made a big deal about Canada being re-engaged with the UN. I'm not sure why, because the United Nations is and has been for a long time an organization that gives as much credence to thugs, dictators, rogues as it does to, well, duly elected democratic leaders like Justin Trudeau or Barack Obama or David Cameron or Francois Hollande or Angela Merkel or go around the world, pick a democracy. They hold as much sway at the UN as Robert Mugabe or Kim Jong-un out in North Korea or the royal family at the House of Saud or even Bashir al-Assad, a man who was in the middle of trying to win a civil war, like him or hate him, the man has committed some atrocities. The man is not in control of his full country, and yet his country gets certain privileges at the UN. They get honored. They get put on human rights bodies just recently. And this is what Justin Trudeau was celebrating with Canada being back at the UN. The latest is that there is um, the United Nations Human Rights Council has an investigator constantly into the activities of Israel. Because the UN, in addition to all its other faults, is constantly picking on the only democracy in the Middle East, the state of Israel. There's no other democracy in the Middle East And Israel gets denounced at the U.N. more than any other country on the planet. In fact, add up all the other denunciations of every other country together, it doesn't add up to how many times in a year they denounce Israel. But this is the organization that our prime minister wants us to be back in line with. According to U.N. Watch, which is a Geneva-based organization headed up by a Canadian named Halel Noor, who monitors the U.N., specifically their human rights bodies, 
the United Nations Human Rights Council is getting ready to appoint someone named Penny Green to be the investigator into Israel. Penny Green is a British academic who is number one on the short list of candidates to be that investigator. Let me read to you from the release that UN Watch put out. They say, Green has compared Israel to ISIS, lamenting that the U.S. and the U.K. have not yet started bombing Israel for its massacres. Hello Neuer says, by recommending Penny Green to investigate a country that she seeks to bomb and boycott, the U.N. makes a mockery of its own selection criteria of objectivity and impartiality. Why on earth is Canada celebrating being back in line with an organization that seeks to elevate a woman that says, let's start bombing Israel. Why are we bombing ISIS and not Israel? Why are we celebrating the UN? Why are we not demanding that this organization reform itself or lose funding? Why are we not saying reform yourself or we, a democratic country, will leave? The United Nations holds too high a position in the minds of far too many Canadians because it is never questioned. Our media does not question it because they put it back to the days of Lester Pearson. It's not that organization anymore. It is a corrupt body that either needs to be reformed or abolished. It needs to, and since nobody seems to want to abolish it or leave it, then at least it needs to be reformed. But how can we sit there and not actively try to tell them, you will reform or we will denounce you and we will withdraw our funding until you fix yourself? rather than having Justin Trudeau stand like a fanboy next to Ban Ki-moon in the foyer of the House of Commons as I and others looked on, talking about how Canada's back. What are we back doing? Other than denouncing Israel, backing organizations that celebrate the killing of Jews, and seek to isolate the only democracy in the Middle East. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. It's more of what you heard coming up later. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. This is the point in the show where I try and look for headlines that might be a little bit different. A little bit different than what you're going to hear elsewhere or at least expound just a little bit on them. Coming up later on, we do have uh, from, as I said, top of the second hour, I'm going to start going into discussion of Justin Trudeau and his comments and then deconstruct them on various issues. We're going to play extended comments. I, I won't take the, the prime minister out of context, but we will deconstruct them. We're going to have the replay from the best interview that you need to hear from elsewhere on CFRA, and that is George Chavallo on with Evan Solomon earlier today. George Chavallo is a, an amazing character. And coming up just after the news at the bottom of the hour, I'm going to expound on something we talked about yesterday with Bob Zimmer about guns and gun culture in Canada. But right now, let's talk about what's going on in the United States with their vote. Uh, there's a big fight going on because Donald Trump came out and said, Islam hates the West. And in Florida, um, that became a big, a big exchange as the Republican candidates were having a debate. 
Marco Rubio is saying, look, you can't just paint everyone with that brush because a lot of Muslims have shown their love for America, including some that have died fighting in the American military. If you go to any national cemetery, especially Arlington, you're going to see crescent moons there. You're going to, if you go anywhere in the world, you're going to see American men and women serving us in uniform that are Muslims. And they love America. And as far as I know, no one on this stage has served in uniform in the United States military. I got to say, I agree with Rubio. And if you listen, you know I'm not a big Rubio guy. But look, we can have a discussion about political Islam and about ISIS, and you don't have to be all PC and say, well, of course not all Muslims are terrorists. We don't have to get into that. But you can't just say everyone who's Muslim hates the West. It's simply not true. I can point you to Dr. Zudi uh, Jasser, who runs an organization in the States, and he's a, he's a decorated naval guy. Let me get on quickly to the next story. That is Nancy Reagan. Um, she was buried today. Her son, her son Ron Reagan, named for his father, got up to speak and talked about how fitting it was she was buried next to his father. Here they'll stay, as they always wished it to be, resting in each other's arms, only each other's arms, till the end of time. Such a beautiful spot in the Simi Valley and such a beautiful ceremony. Now, President Obama decided not to come. He decided to go to a festival instead. Given what I will get into later about the inability of progressives to go to um, events that are supposed to be nonpartisan and not take shots at their opponents, maybe it was best that Obama didn't go. Although it's the second slight that he's done to conservatives in their funerals within a couple of weeks. Finally... Do you know how bad it is in Alberta? The natural resources minister didn't make the trip to Washington for the big event and the big state dinner. Well, check out what they're saying uh, in terms of how bad the unemployment rate is in Calgary. It's 8.4%. And Frieder Risher, who's a licensed insolvency trustee out there, is saying things are getting really bad. The tone of my discussions with people now, certainly year to date, is that there's, there's a little bit more desperation in the air and frustration because they're running out of money. So they're running out of money. They're running out of jobs. Where was this on Justin Trudeau's big adventure down to Washington? James Carr was sitting in the House of Commons looking like a dope answering questions. And by the way, Ronna Ambrose? She was actually invited. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. In all its glory, to the gun manufacturers and the lobbyists looking to bend a politician's ear, this might be about getting their message across, but to me, it's about one thing. Checking out all the sweet firearms brought in from personal collections and ready for me to fire downrange. That is from my uh, video about, about 18 months ago now. Uh, back in the days when, as... Carson used to say, I was on another network, a now non-existent network, went to a shooting range just east of Ottawa, 
Uh, I think it's the Eastern Ontario Shooting Club. I could have the name wrong. My apologies if I do. One of you will email me, uh, beyondthenews at cfra.com, if you want to get in touch with me by email, by the way, beyondthenews at cfra.com. But the National Firearms Association hosted a range day where they take politicians and media. There's a few different range days. We'll get into that in a moment. But um, I was able to go out to this one and try out a lot of different firearms. I tried out uh, an M1, the service rifle of the American military in the uh, Second World War. It was amazing. I happened to break it, um, not because I did anything wrong, but honestly, I squeezed off one shot, and the stock broke, which tells me it would have happened if we ever fired the next shot. I still feel guilty to this day. Last night, I had uh, Bob Zimmer on, Conservative MP from the Peace River District of British Columbia talking about the most popular petition on the House of Commons website. Right now, for the first time in Canadian history, they're accepting e-petitions. They have to follow a certain uh, formula, but and you have to get a, a member of parliament to sponsor it, but you can sign, uh, you can get an e-petition going at the House of Commons. Get enough signatures on it, and you can even spark a debate in the House of Commons. So I had Zimmer on, and he said something that might um, shock a lot of Canadians. It might shock many of you. And I want to replay just a a titch of that interview and then play a little bit more from my day at the range and talk to you about why Zimmer's right about the need to normalize firearms in Canada. You know, we have a a day at the range uh, every year in Parliament where we go to Stittsville Range and we expose, doesn't matter which party you're from, we've had NDP, we've had Liberal, we've had a lot of Conservatives, uh, actually folks that have never fired firearms before that that have been a little bit cautious about firearms. And they come out there and experience them in a positive way, in a very safe way. And just just have the realization that firearms aren't anything to be afraid of. And if you know how to operate one safely, there is nothing to be afraid of. So, again, that's the premise of this bill is is just, to, you know, uh, firearms are, should be normalized to a certain extent for those of us. Uh, you know, we understand they can be operated safely and it, uh, they're operated safely in Canada year after year after year. Uh, the fact of the matter is that they are 15 uh, when handled safely, is a completely uh, innocuous uh, firearm, and, and we support its uh, reclassification back to non-restricted. All right. The AR-15, by the way, often described as a controversial gun, is not controversial at all. It's the most commonly owned firearm in North America. It was made restricted due to people that don't know enough. I'm someone that fired a a gun for the first time when I was 14. I joined Army Cadets, and on my very first night, was taken to the basement of the James Street Armories, handed an FNC-1A1, which at that point was the service rifle of the Canadian Armed Forces and many of our NATO allies. They handed it to me and said, okay, you're going to convert this down to a 22 and then fire. To me, they sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. I had no idea what they were saying, but they showed me what to do. And they taught me how to safely handle a firearm. They taught me how to safely handle rifles, pistols. Uh, Occasionally, we got to use shotguns at the range. Being the military, I even got to fire fully automatic. But most rifles in Canada are semi-automatic, which means you pull the trigger once, one bullet comes out. 
that's a very normal way to operate a gun in this country. But despite the fact that in many parts of Canada, including within the sound of my voice here in the Ottawa Valley, there is still an active gun culture. Even within urban environments, there is an active gun culture that has nothing to do with people getting shot on street corners or thrown out of cars on highways filled with bullets. Those people are not given the respect they they deserve. Because what happens is the criminals end up shooting each other and people say, well, we have to ban guns because guns aren't safe and we can't have people owning guns. You know, when someone carries out an act of terrorism in the name of jihad, we're told we can't blame all Muslims. But as soon as someone carries out a shooting, we're told we have to blame all gun owners and take their guns away. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to that. I want to play you another clip, and this is me at the range. And if you want to see the full video of me handling all kinds of different guns, you can find it at brianlilly.com. It's an older video now, but it's a lot of fun, brianlilly.com. But I got to fire a 50 caliber. This is a bone-shaking gun. I was standing 10 feet behind a guy that shot one, and I felt it in my groin. He didn't shoot me. I felt the recoil. That's how powerful this gun is. But it is a fantastic rifle used by snipers around the world and made here in Canada. It's called the PGW 50 Cal. I had a pretty good grouping for an amateur on PGW's okay. 308, but that wasn't the big prize that everyone wanted to fire. PGW uh, yeah, also brought the, uh, in their 50 cal. Good. Is the first time you shot a 50? First time I shot a 50, and still getting used to using support bags, so this is different for me. Just fine-tuning your elevation there, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, and ready? Stand by. That's something. <laughs> that is something. It really was something. Now, you're going to hear me over the coming weeks and months talking about guns, and I'm going to try and bring it down to a level that everyone can understand. So the gunnies, you're going to be bored. And, but everybody else, we have some incredible uh, locations. You heard Bob Zimmer talk about the Stittsville range. That's a different gun uh, range day that they do just for politicians and media don't get to go, and there's a good reason for that. But you know what? We should be doing more of these range days to open it up to the public. I want to try and talk to some of the guys that um, it'll either be with the National Firearms Association or the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and I want to open it up for the media because too often you hear from the media and they write about guns, and they don't know anything about guns. And so they'll say things like the AR-15 is controversial. Hmm, no, it's a really good rifle. They will say things about so-and-so had 500 rounds. You know what that is? That's a good afternoon at the range. That is not a scary amount of bullets to have in your house if you are a firearms owner. So we're going to talk more about guns over the next several weeks, and you're going to hear me, and we're going to talk about it, and I'll explain why if you have a healthy respect for firearms, there's nothing to be afraid of. The people you need to be afraid of are the gangsters shooting their friends and their enemies on street corners. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA.
You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If it's true that you get what you give, then George Chivalo gave it all when he was in the ring. George Chivalo is a boxing legend, and I'm jealous. I don't often get jealous of other radio heads, but I'm jealous of Evan Solomon for getting to interview George Chivalo. This is a man who was the only guy to go the distance with Ali twice. This is a man who showed how tough he was against people like George Foreman and Joe Frazier. He is a, a legend in the boxing world, and strange as it is, I often shock people by telling them how much I love watching boxing. So Chivalo was on with Evan earlier today. We try and bring you one interview a day that you've got to hear from somewhere else on the station. Um, let's take a listen. I'll give you my quick reaction at the end. He is a legend. He's in the Hall of Fame. And 50 years ago, hard to believe it was 50 years ago, at Maple Leaf Gardens, when Muhammad Ali couldn't fight in the United States because of his stance on the Vietnam War, quote, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong, he came to Canada and he fought the best, George Chevalo, and they went 15 rounds. And George Chevalo fought Muhammad Ali twice. He fought everyone. He fought Jerry Quarry, knocked him out. Seventh round. I mean, the career is incredible. And his personal life, he was knocked down, but he keeps getting up. Three of his kids died, suicide, drug overdoses. But George Cervallo has been an inspiration for generations. And today's the 50th anniversary of that great, great fight with Muhammad Ali. And he joins us now. George Cervallo, great to have you on Ottawa now. Yeah, thank you. How are you? I'm 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 great, and you know I always love our conversations. It's hard to believe that this is the anniversary of that fight. Uh, how often do you think of that that famous historic fight with Muhammad Ali? Well, I actually, uh, if I'm left to my own uh, devices, I don't think about it that much. But I'm reminded of it every day pretty well, especially when I meet somebody uh, for the first time. And then they'll, they'll bring that up. I did fight uh, Muhammad way back in uh, '66. Yeah, I guess it was March 29th, 1966. Right? Yes, it was. That's right. So March 29th. What, what an amazing, incredible 15 rounds. And and that fight, you never, you you know, it was a decision, right? You never went down to Muhammad Ali. How tough was that first fight? Because this was Muhammad Ali, 1966. This was peak Ali. This was Ali at his most dangerous. You were dangerous. Just tell me, how, how tough was that first fight? Well, the fight was tough for, for the main reason of the fact it was, it was 15 rounds. That's a long time. That's like 59 minutes from start to finish. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and when you're in there with a guy like Ali, who's so quick, and uh, so difficult to fight and so difficult to trap, uh, it's tough. <laughs> you fought him again in 72. What was the right. difference between the 66 fight and the 72 fight? Well, uh, in 66, uh, he was pretty well on his peak, and, and, and I guess uh, so was I. That's right. But 
but in the, in the but when we came around to fight him again, uh, he deteriorated a lot worse than I did. So and I, I think I won that second fight. I, I was jobbed, so to speak, uh, by the judges. But uh, anyway, I, I thought I won the fight, and so, so did a whole lot of other people. Uh, but uh, unfortunately for me, the the judges voted for him, and uh, he got the decision. But yeah. I got jobbed. Yeah, <laughs> you think you got jobbed? I mean, famously so. I, I mean, and and obviously Georgia Chevallo, uh, you're still obviously one of the great fighters of all time. You know, you look at what's happened to the health of Muhammad Ali. Do you attribute what's happened to him to boxing, to the boxing ring? And Because now we hear about concussions and CTE, and we hear with NFL players and hockey players and, and boxers. Well, boxing is a tough business. And uh, you, when, you get your, when you take a shot, you get, uh, you, first of all, you're not fighting with a helmet. You don't have any protection, really. You, just, uh, you get hit with a glove. It's got some padding in it, but... Uh, you know, you get you can get rocked by good shots to the head, and the brain is in a sea of liquid in your in your brain, and it gets rocked and it hits the side of the of the inside of your skull. You know, quite a number of times in the fight, and it's 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 a tough it's a tough world that way. When you because I'm not surprised about anybody getting uh, getting injured in a fight. I mean, the guys get injured in the fight uh, on the ice, uh, skating, you know, hockey players. Did you get how get many con- uh, how many concussions did you have, George Chavala? I don't know. I I couldn't I couldn't tell you how many concussions. I I never got it. Uh, I didn't um, I didn't go to the hospital at all after any fight, so I, I wouldn't know. I mean, if I got a concussion, I wasn't aware of it. You know. Uh, a lot of NFL players, when they pass away now, they're donating their brains to be studied for CTE. Would you ever think about doing that so your your brain might be studied one day to see the impact of what you took? Uh, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that for a little while. I wouldn't. Uh, I'm not ready to give up my brain for an inspection right now. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> right now. Uh, you shouldn't be. I, I asked. just don't feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great answer, George. Hey, I, I spoke to Bret Hart, and I've got him for an hour this weekend on Real Talk. I asked him about mixed martial arts, and he's and he's concerned. You know Bret Hart, the great Hall of Fame wrestler, of course. Yeah. Let me play a clip. He, he's concerned that those fighters may get suffer severe brain damage from concussions. Listen to what he said. Yeah, I have a hard time watching UFC especially when you know the fight's over and the, the knockout blow is landed and the guy falls to the ground and no one does anything and then the guy jumps on top of his and opponent and, and gets about 10 good shots in on the head, like just pounds the guy into the ground. And then the referee steps in. Those are all brain damage. All that is, that is, I, I can't, I could never do that to a friend of mine. I could never shake hands with a guy after that did that to me. You think those guys are going to age badly? Oh, yeah, for sure. All of them. That is Bret Hart on mixed martial arts and UFC. He believes that there's going to be severe damage from those guys. Now, what what about you, George Chevallo, as you watch mixed martial arts, a growing sport? What's your take on it? Is it dangerous, more dangerous than boxing? Is it more dangerous than boxing? I think so. I, I think in, in boxing, once a, uh, you know, a fight is terminated, uh, 
that's it. And you, you know, you and before you really get damaged uh, uh, to a further degree, usually the fight is stopped by the referee, who's uh, trained and, uh, to stop the fight uh, uh, when it doesn't have to continue, uh, you know, unnecessarily. And uh, so I think it's, uh, boxing is a little safer than mixed martial arts in that regard. A lot of the times when you're hurt in mixed martial arts, they don't stop it right away. They let it go a little too long. And when it goes a little too long, that's when that's when uh, you can get hurt. That's when you can you have a tough time rebounding to, to a normal life when you get banged like, like they do. You believe, I was speaking with George Cheval, the great champion, boxer so for you when you watch this growing sport of mixed martial arts you believe that it's even more dangerous potentially to the athlete than boxing and, and you would worry about the, the damage to their brains the concussions well is it more dangerous well it, goes, it can go on a little too long uh, the referee can uh, you know uh, kind of miscue so to speak and let the fight go on a little longer than it should it isn't like uh, they can stop the fight at any given time and, uh, you know, if they stop the fight, then the fight's over. If they stop the fight to inspect the, or to have a doctor inspect or have your the referee inspect the the damage done uh, as best he can, uh, more likely more likely to let the fight go on. And, uh, and if the fight goes on and you're damaged, you're already damaged, and then you get a few more shots to the head, it just furthers the problem. I'm speaking with George Cheval. Last question before I let you go. And, and you know how much I enjoy speaking with you. You've been an inspiration dealing with your, your obviously, the, the personal, your family history. So, so much tragedy, but you've always emerged, I think, as one of the most inspirational figures in the country. And, and not only as a boxer, as an athlete, but as a human being, just an extraordinary guy, uh, George. But just before I let you go, what's happened to boxing? You know, do, do, do you feel that, you know, the heavyweight boxing, no one... How do you fix it? How do you get it back? Or are those days gone? Are, are the, the days of Chevalo and Ali gone? Well, I, I think uh, it takes some serious movement on uh, on the commission to to have the you know, to have the fights uh, continue the way they are now. I mean, it, it takes a little more. Uh, Takes a little more willpower by the commissions to make sure the guys, when they're hurt, uh, get saved from further uh, beating by stopping the fight. It's it's it's, it's a it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of stopping the fight when a guy is hurt, and then just to further the damage, uh, it doesn't make sense. George Chavala, so yeah, go ahead. So that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. The guy who's running the fight. The, the the referee is is the guy that's going to have to make the decision split second decision sometimes to, to in order to stop a fight at, at the proper time. George Chavallo, Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, member of the Order of Canada, Canada's Walk of Fame, champion boxer. Fifty years ago, March twenty ninth, he fought Muhammad Ali in Maple Leaf Gardens. That was the be- not that was just one moment in a legendary life. What a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. You know how much I love our conversations, George. And uh, you take care of yourself, my friend. Okay, my friend. You take care now. You too. George. All right, Evan Solomon in conversation on Ottawa Now. Earlier today with George Chavallo, you know, big boxing fan that I am. I was able to call one boxing fight. It was between Justin Trudeau and Patrick Brazo. Yes, I was the ringside announcer for that fight alongside Ezra Levant. Did not feel qualified, but boy, would I love to meet 
interview talk with George Favallo. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I promised you that I would spend the next hour listening to what Justin Trudeau had to say in Washington today and then deconstructing parts of it. And I want to start with what he had to say about the issue of climate change, because the prime minister has said that climate change is a huge threat to the entire world. He has said that carbon has to be priced. He went into a meeting with the first minister saying he's open to other ideas and he wants to have cooperative cooperative federalism, and then said, but if they don't do what I want, I'll force it on them. And then he went to Washington and said what all politicians seem to say today when they genuflect before the altar of global warming. And everyone understands that climate change is a tremendous challenge, uh, but at the same time, we also have to see it as a real opportunity, an opportunity to innovate, an opportunity to develop solutions that we uh, in, the, in our countries, but also folks around the world desperately need. And our capacity uh, to collaborate, coordinate. Collaborate, coordinate, do all kinds of things. But do we actually have to be worried about climate change and carbon? Patrick Moore is one of the, he was one of the founders of Greenpeace. He has a Ph.D. in, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, ecology. Am I wrong on that? correct on I'm that. correct on that. Okay, so you have a PhD in ecology. Uh, you are an actual scientist, unlike so many that tell us what we have to worry about when it comes to climate change. And you have been involved in the environmental movement since the 1960s, and you remain involved in the environmental movement, correct? Yes, I, I'm an ecologist and an environmental activist all my life, a little over 45 years now. I've been studying climate change every day You know, I read everything that comes out about it every day, along with many other environmental issues, for a long time now. So do we need to fear carbon? Because whether it's Justin Trudeau or Kathleen Wynne in Ontario, who's just in her latest budget, brought in a a price on carbon through cap and trade. Patrick Brown, the Ontario progressive conservative leader who said, absolutely, we have to put a price on carbon. Are you just a contrarian when you say we don't need to fear carbon? No, I'm not, but it's not carbon they're talking about. They're talking about carbon dioxide. And if they want to be any, like, credible with science, they should stop using this term carbon to describe the colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that is the most important food for all life on Earth. Like, all plants need carbon dioxide. They don't eat carbon as a substance. Carbon is, is, uh, uh, comes in many forms. It's a, a, a miracle element. It comes as soot, which is black and dirty. That's why they're using the term carbon, because everybody thinks of soot. But or or we think of the old carbon paper that used to make our fingers dirty. Exactly. You think of dirty when you think of carbon. and all, But diamonds are also pure carbon. And, you know, that, there's nothing wrong with diamonds. We don't have to be afraid of them. And uh, the, 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 the graphite in our pencil is made of pure carbon. So carbon, because of different crystalline forms, can be in many different shapes and sizes, but it's not carbon they're talking about. They're talking about carbon dioxide, which is a gas that is present in the atmosphere 
at 0.04%. They say 400 parts per million, and 400 sounds like a big number, but it's at 0.04%, 400 parts per million. Before we started putting CO2 in the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, that carbon that is in that CO2 that we're burning came from the atmosphere in the first place. All the fossil fuels were made by plants being buried in the ground. And so that carbon dioxide was taken out of the atmosphere and reduced the amount of CO2 that was available for plants. And throughout the entire history of modern life, 600 million years since the Cambrian explosion and life came on the land from the sea, where it's the only place it was before, and it was all microscopic. But 600 million years ago, life came on the land and plants started to grow and pull the CO2 out of the atmosphere, and some of it got buried every year, and on and on. And then marine creatures learned to build calcareous shells around themselves to protect themselves out of calcium carbonate. And the carbon in the carbonate came from CO2 dissolved in the ocean. So gradually over the history of life, CO2 in the atmosphere has been declining. They talk about the balance of nature. The carbon cycle is not in balance over the history of life because life keeps taking more of it out and putting it in the ground where it doesn't get back into the carbon cycle. We came along just before, in terms of geological time, just before CO2 got down so low that plants would start to die for lack of it, CO2 starvation. My paper on this is coming out in a week or two. It's the best thing I've ever, it's the most important thing I've ever written in my life because I've put this together more or less myself, and I understand the carbon cycle. The carbon cycle has been put back into a semblance of balance by our CO2 emissions inadvertently. And, you know, if you go to the Gaia hypothesis of James Lovelock, which says that all life is acting in concert to keep the chemistry of the atmosphere at a state that makes life is conducive to life on Earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but it's enough to make you religious to see that we have actually come along just in time to save life from being extinguished due to a lack of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, you know, they say it hasn't been this high for 800,000 years. 800,000 years is still only partway back in our pleasant present Pleistocene Ice well, Age, which started two and a half million years ago. People don't have any idea of the scale of time that is operating here on this planet. They okay. think in terms of 100 years, and, and that is not the way to think about this subject. Well, Patrick, I, I recently watched one of your videos, and I've just posted two of them up at my website and on Facebook. So if people want to see you expand on this and use charts and use statistics and you know, be able to say, look, I heard this guy on the radio, and, and, and here's what he said, and they want to be able to share it, well, they can find it at com or on my Facebook page. But... At Idea City, you showed that there's no correlation over the uh, millennia between carbon levels and temperature levels. That is correct. There is no historical correlation between carbon dioxide and global temperature. If you look in the last 500 years, there's no correlation. If you look in the last 5 million years, there is a, a, a tendency for them to be in sort of harmony with each other for a while. But if you look in the last 50 million years, they are totally out of whack. And if you look in the last 500 million years, they're even more totally out of whack. They are actually more often out of sync than they are in sync. And I had a guy on Twitter today who claims to be an expert tell me that you don't have to show a correlation 
between CO2 and temperature to prove that CO2 is the cause of the warming. (laughs) You know, he actually said that. And, of course, correlation is a necessary precedent to a causal relationship, whereas correlation by itself, though, does not prove a causal relationship. A causal relationship has to have correlation, though. There's, you know, there's the classic case of ice cream consumption and shark attacks. They are really highly correlated. <laughs> whenever, whenever there's an increase in ice cream consumption, there's this same increase in shark attacks. Oh, and wait, why, the, why would that be? Because of a, another, a third common factor, which is heat in the summer. So people <laughs> eat more ice cream when it's warm, and people go swimming and get bitten by sharks more. But they don't and, necessarily get bitten by sharks because they're eating ice cream. Precisely. So correlation does not prove causation, but causation must have correlation in order to exist. Because if something causes something else to happen, then when it isn't causing it to happen, they, they will both be low. And when it is causing it to happen, they will both be high, if you see what I mean. I didn't say that quite right, but I think no, people no. will understand. Yeah, no, I, we, we, we know what you mean. Um, so then explain to me why we've got politician after politician coming out and saying we've got to put a price on carbon uh you know we we've it's at the provincial level it's all the government and all the opposition parties in ontario at the federal level justin trudeau says you know do it or we'll force it on you and it it doesn't matter if if you show them the united nations uh intergovernmental panel on climate change that says there hasn't been any warming since 1998 doesn't matter if you show them the latest study that includes michael mann for goodness sakes the guy that invented the hockey stick graph says it ain't warming like we said it would boys everyone is just married to this idea of we have to fear carbon we need to uh put a price on it why well two points uh here first you know, the concept of a sin tax that's on alcohol and tobacco, which are bad for people. Uh, so if you can make it seem that carbon dioxide is bad for people, it's easier to get them to accept a tax. People don't like increases in taxes. That's one of the main reasons they throw politicians out or, or don't vote for them or whatever. And so you, you, you've got here, they're making it seem like our carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel all through the Paris conference, CNN and the other big news networks were showing pictures of dirty air in China, and the, the term they were using these days is conflating it with CO2, which is invisible and has nothing to do with air pollution or smog. CO2 is, is the food that plants are eating in order to grow. That's how they get the carbon. That's you know carbon dioxide, carbon-based life forms like you and me and every other living thing on the planet. Yeah. This is what people have to understand. But the other point is, is that gasoline and diesel and, 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 and fossil fuel carbon-based fuels are already taxed to the hilt. In Ontario, you're paying 28, nearly 29 cents a liter is taxed from the federal and provincial government. Nearly a third of the price. Actually, I think it is about exactly a yeah, third well, of the price. I, I'm paying about 90 cents a liter right now. Maybe yeah, just so a little paying, bit less. You're paying nearly 30 cents of that is taxed. So why don't they just say we're going to increase the tax on gasoline and stop being so stupid calling it a carbon tax? <laughs> That's ridiculous. I mean, carbon is the building block of life to start with. Carbon dioxide is also the building block of life because that's what plants use to make carbon-based life. 
And if there were no plants, there'd be no animals or insects or fish or anything else that needs to eat. You know, so it, it, we've, we've got to turn this around somehow because the whole world is being duped. And the, the, the high-level point I will make is what we have here, unfortunately, is a very powerful convergence of interests among key elites in our society. And it's mostly in Western society. The Chinese don't buy this. They just play along. The Indians don't buy it. They just play along. The Russians don't buy it. They're just playing along. That's nearly half of the human population between those three countries that are just playing along because they don't, you know, they just want to play along because they don't want to look like they're on the outs. And so they, they and, and they play along partly because we promise we're going to give them all kinds of things. Let them, you know, Obama and China agreed that China could keep ramping up its emissions until 2030 without any problem as long as they agreed to the Paris Accord. Well, what were they agreeing to? They were agreeing that they'd be allowed to keep ramping up their emissions, whereas in the West we're, we're promising to ramp them down. Well, uh, I've and shown pay, and I've, pay for it through the nose. Patrick, I've actually shown that Ontario is more than six percent below 1990 levels on a provincial scale, and we're still being, to- which was the Kyoto promise, and we're still being told we got to get a carbon tax. Um, look, well, that's, I, I, that's partly that's that's partly because you've driven energy-intensive industries out by all this wind and solar making electricity. And taxing them. I, so I'm up higher. against a, a break, Patrick. Are you able to stick around for a couple minutes? I'd love it. Okay. We're going to go to break, come back with more of Patrick Moore, a scientist you actually want to listen to. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. A few more minutes left with Patrick Moore, a sensible environmentalist, an actual scientist, a PhD in ecology, and joins me now on the line from beautiful Mexico. Got to say I'm a little bit jealous, Patrick. If you want to find out more about Patrick and hear his full explanations of carbon, carbon pricing, why we should celebrate carbon and not worry about it, you can find the videos on facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Patrick, we, we Brian, only have a Brian, few minutes for, left. For a, yep. For a larger exposition, my book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, is on Amazon.com as an e-book for under 10 bucks, and also as a print book if that's what you like. Um, I'd just like to elaborate on the five key elites that, that, whose interests converge over this from a financial and political point of view. There's the whole green movement raising hundreds of millions of dollars saying that they're going to fight climate science and climate justice and all that. Mm-hmm. Then there's the political establishment, particularly on the progressive left, as it's called these days, which is making hay out of this, that they're going to save the world for everybody. Then there is the whole uh, business community on the green side, building all these solar farms and wind farms with guaranteed subsidies uh, for everybody in the system for 20 years, guaranteed profits. So that's a pretty good, sweet deal. It's called crony capitalism. Uh, then there is the media, of course, which is built on sensation and conflict and, and, and getting advertising revenue because people want to read it. Uh, and it's always, it's always about a disaster. And the, the, the fifth is the scientists and the science institutions. NASA gets $1.5 billion a year from the U.S. federal government to study climate, and no person in NASA can be a skeptic. There's a whole group of ex-NASA people retired called the Real Climate Stuff, 
who are able to speak out now because they had to keep their mouth shut being muzzled all through the time they were there. So if you take all of those five key elites and put them together, you've got a powerful force. You, you, well, you, you really, really do. Now, I, people accuse you of uh, being in the pockets of big oil. They've accused me of that. I, I don't know about you, but I don't get checks I, I, or cash. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't get any payments. I wish I did. Well, I'm not in, I'm not in the pockets of big oil because I'm actually semi-retired. But I'll tell you one thing. How do you get the groceries to the store? You know, I, I, this is just ridiculous. How do you so, fly an airplane across the so Atlantic let, let, Ocean? We only, we only have a minute left. Let me ask you then about this idea that there's 99% of scientists agree. Is there a consensus, Patrick? All of the studies that said that are not peer-reviewed. They are complete BS. There is a very good peer-reviewed study by Legatis et al., including Moncton, which shows that the math in those things was completely rigged. All four of the main studies that says there's this huge consensus. There is not a huge consensus. When meteorologists are canvassed, very often less than half of them support that concept. So it, 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 it's a fake consensus. And besides which, Einstein said, he said, it only takes one person to prove me wrong. When a bunch of scientists ganged up on him over relativity back in the day, they signed a petition, 100 scientists or something. He said, why do you need 100 scientists? It only takes one scientist to prove me wrong. That just shows that consensus is not a scientific concept. It's a legal concept. It's a, a political concept, but it's not it's a scientific not science. concept. Well, I'm going to keep listening to you because, well, they keep telling me, Patrick, listen to the science. But then when I do, they tell me it's the wrong science. Thanks for taking the time tonight. You're very welcome. Nice to be with you, Brian. All right. You want to find out more about Patrick Moore, as, uh, as, you, as he said, check out his uh, book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, or you can watch his videos. They're on brianlilly.com on my Facebook page. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. This song, hmm, I gotta watch myself with this song. If you're familiar with Scooby Snacks by Fun Love and Criminals, then you know why I gotta be careful with this song. A little bit of Pulp Fiction going on at the beginning of that one. Anyway, I told you that I was gonna spend the uh, the second hour going over Justin Trudeau's comments, and I went longer with Patrick Moore from Greenpeace, well, formerly of Greenpeace, we didn't even get into the story this time. Maybe you've heard it before. Full disclosure, I, I was on a cruise several years ago. I was on the Freedom Cruise that uh, Ezra Levant put on with Patrick, and we went up to Alaska, where the, the natives told us, by the way, that the um, they brought on, sorry, let me say that in more sensitive terms, they brought indigenous people onto the boat, onto the ship, and they told us that, well, on a regular basis, they have witnessed over the millennia the ice expand and recede. Did I say that in my best CBC National Public Radio tones? Like, has anyone crashed into the barriers on the Queensway because they were falling asleep as I talked at the moment? 
Anyway, Patrick Moore left Greenpeace because they wanted to ban chlorine. Yeah, they wanted to ban an element on the chlor- on the periodic table. They wanted to just, you know, ban something that is required for life to continue to exist because they don't know science. And many of the organizations that you hear don't know science. But Patrick is an actual scientist, so we went a little longer than we were expecting. But beyond his climate change comments, Trudeau made many comments that I, I want to spend some time deconstructing with you right now. And one of the things that he keeps saying and others keep saying is that diversity is our strength. Hmm. Sounds innocuous. Yeah, like, how can you argue with that? Diversity is our strength. Well, I want to play the clip of Trudeau saying diversity is our strength and then read to you some of his other comments and explain why at least his vision of this is wrong. No progressive movement can succeed if it doesn't embrace the fundamental truth that diversity is strength. Canadians know this. We live this truth every day. And so do our American friends. The optimism and the generosity that we see in our communities on both sides of the border, that's what we need to focus on. You see, fear is easy. Friendship? Friendship takes work. But Canada and the United States have proven time and time again that finding common ground is worth the effort. On our own, we make progress, but together, we make history. For my part, I'm optimistic about the work we've done here in Washington over the past few days. I'm optimistic that it will continue to pay dividends well into the future. When I was a kid, there was a steel company in Hamilton named DeFasco, since been bought out by an Indian conglomerate steel company called ArcelorMittal. But when I was a kid, I, I grew up with hearing the, sen, uh, the, the phrase, our product is uh, steel, our strength is people. And in some ways, Trudeau's riffing on that sort of thing, talking about diversity being our strength. Except that for him, diversity does not mean that we've got a bunch of different people coming together around one common idea. Trudeau buys in to the leftist view of Canada that unfortunately, and it wasn't always like this, there was a time when we all believed in Canada. But now the leftist idea of Canada is that this country is the greatest hotel ever. That's what Jan Martel said. Celebrated author, uh, he I believe he you know has a room at CBC where they just you know wheel him out whenever they want him to say anything profound and then wheel him back in and you know he's this guy you've never read him most of you maybe some of you have but probably most of you have never read him but you've been told that he's wonderful but his view of Canada is Canada's greatest hotel ever because you don't have to pledge allegiance to Canada you don't have to become Canadian you just it's like a better version of Hotel California you can you can check out anytime you want now in case you think that I am being unfair to Justin Trudeau in his vision of diversity well here's what he said in his New York Times profile there is no core identity no mainstream in Canada he's speaking about English Canada here there is no core identity 
no mainstream in Canada. There are shared values, openness, respect, compassion, willingness to work hard, to be there for each other, to search for equality and justice. Those qualities are what make us the first post-national state. He doesn't even view Canada as being a nation state. He doesn't view Canada as having a core identity. That is how the elites of Canada, of English Canada, and pretty much everyone in French Canada has viewed English Canada for decades. Since the Quiet Revolution, they've looked at English Canada and said, well, you know, what do you guys stand for? You don't have anything. We got our language. We got French. What do you got? I don't believe in that. I grew up in an area that defines diversity. So, as you may have noticed, because I've mentioned it probably every night, my parents were Scottish immigrants. My next-door neighbors were Scottish immigrants. Next to them were Serbian immigrants. Then there were Jamaicans. Um, And I'm trying to remember past that, I think there was a Greek family. Going around the corner, there were Newfoundlanders. Yep. I mean, you may as well be an immigrant if you're from Newfoundland, right? Uh, Next to them were Filipinos, Lebanese, Italians. On my paper route were Polacks, Croats, um, Italians, East Indians. I can go on. But they all came to Canada because they believed in Canada. They came to Canada because they believed in a certain view that this was a country of opportunity, that this was a country that believed in the rule of law, that this was a country that respected rights and freedoms. Those are core identities. Those are core values. But Justin Trudeau goes to the New York Times and says there's no core identity, no mainstream. Then he says diversity is our strength. What he is saying and why I disagree with his vision of diversity as strength is that he doesn't think we all need to come together as Canadians. He thinks, as many liberals in the past have thought, that we should all stay in our own little ghetto. Now, I grew up in a a tough town. I grew up in an industrial town. And I grew up in a town with immigrants from all over the freaking world. But they all came to Canada and believed in Canada. They came to this country for a reason because I don't know if you know what it's like personally. If you're an immigrant, then you know what I'm talking about. But when you're looking at going around the world, your options are before you. My parents looked at Australia. They looked at the United States. I know that they didn't look seriously at South Africa, but I know a lot of people of their generation went to South Africa. They looked and they said, you know what? Canada looks good. We like what we see in Canada. We want to go and be a part of Canada because we like what we see. And it used to be that liberal or conservative, we said, you know what, welcome to Canada, become part of Canada. And then liberals decided if we just say diversity is our strength and let people stay where they are, even ghettoize them to a degree, you know, you, you stay in Chinatown, you stay in Little Italy, you stay in Little Vietnam – then we can use ethnopolitics. 
Now, whether ethnopolitics is used by the conservatives or the liberals or the New Democrats, I oppose it. Because when you come to Canada, you become Canadian. And that is what most immigrants want. Most immigrants come here for a reason, and that is to join the Canadian experience. Yes, diversity can be a strength, but not in the way that Justin Trudeau says. The next thing that I want to disagree with the Prime Minister on is when he keeps talking about how the middle class is shrinking and that we need to do something about it. Let me play you the next clip. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the first principle you mentioned, um, you know, inclusive prosperity, inclusive growth. Uh, I think it's helpful for people to understand uh, how, you know, how your elections went, how important the concept of inclusive prosperity uh, was to the debate you had in Canada over the last year. Can you share some of your thoughts there? Well, um, the core of the message that, that we put forward, that I put forward from the very beginning uh, of not just the election, but my run for the leadership of the Liberal Party, uh, was a recognition that the middle class has stalled. Uh, and this isn't something unique to Canada, it's something being felt across Western uh, economies, uh, that uh, there's a wide swath of people in the middle of the income spectrum for whom the idea of progress, the idea of growth that works for them, um, doesn't seem to hold as effectively as it did. I mean, and we all know how successful the post-war boom years were in terms of giving uh, people an opportunity to um, you know, get a good job, get a home, uh, you know, provide for their kids and expect their kids to do better than they would. Um, what we've seen over the past 30 years is a, a flatlining of uh, median income uh, for the middle class. And that means people don't feel like this idea of progress still holds. Uh, that you know, our kids will be better off than we will. Uh, and that can be very destabilizing. And it, and it manifests itself in a turning inwards, uh, inwards uh, uh, looking out for yourself and not for the big picture. And that eventually uh, leads us down a path of, of all failing individually instead of all of us succeeding together. So we took that idea that we need to restore growth to the middle class as a central tenet of uh, our economic platform. What does Justin Trudeau know about the middle class? I don't say that in a disparaging way. I'm asking seriously. I grew up the son of a boilermaker. My stepfather was in uh, computer technology in its very early stages in a steel company. My mother was a clerk. She worked in a butcher shop. Then she went to work for the school board. Nobody was rich in my family. Justin Trudeau grew up the son of a prime minister. We are exactly the same age. He grew up the son of a prime minister. His grandfather had made the family fortune in the oil and gas industry. He ran gas stations. Well, owned. He didn't run them. He owned gas stations across Montreal. He owned a um, an amusement park in the north end of Montreal, Belmont Park. They were wealthy. No Trudeau has had to work since the 1930s. Not to make money. They've had a big enough family fortune that they have not had to work to make money since the 1930s. They work for various reasons, as we all do. So when he says the middle class is stalled, does, is he speaking from personal experience? Now, this is where I 
I part company with too many conservatives as well who keep talking about how the middle class is stalled. Let me ask you, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, did your family have two cars? Mine didn't. Maybe it was little, a little over 30 years ago. Finally got to a two-car family. 1984, we bought a Dodge Omni for the second car, eh? Huh? How'd you like them apples? Five people in the house, we had a Dodge Omni. Now we all have cell phones, multiple cell phones. I take the bus all the time. I take the bus through poor neighborhoods. Poor people have cell phones on monthly plans. Everyone's got internet. Did you have internet back then? How much did a computer cost years ago? So we can point to statistics and say the middle class is stalled. People aren't doing as well. But what is our standard of life like? How many people fly? How many people go away on vacation compared to 30, 40 years ago? How much more do you have now compared to before? So I don't care if it's a conservative or a liberal politician. I'm getting tired of this. The middle class is stalled. We actually have more now than we used to. We make different choices. And yes, I will agree that there are problems when too many families believe or think that they need to have both parents working in order to make a living. But the idea that we don't have anything compared to 30, 40 years ago, that is false. I don't care if it's Justin Trudeau saying that or Stephen Harper or Ronna Ambrose or Patrick Brown or anybody else. We have more. We have better access to food. We have better access to fresh food, nutritious food. We have better access to cars. Computers, cell phones, how many phones are in your house? This is a fallacy that's being spread. And I'm going to continue to call people out on it, and I don't care which party they're in because I don't speak for any party. I speak for principles and I speak for ideas, but I do not speak for any party. This is Beyond the News. My name's Brian Lilly. We'll be back deconstructing more of Justin Trudeau's trip to Washington. After the break, time to grab some Scooby Snacks. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. When the prime minister of the country goes overseas, and yes, yeah, it's, it's an odd term for a country that we just, we can walk across the border. But when you go to another country, you're supposed to set aside personal differences. You're supposed to set aside political differences. It's a bit like being in a family, right? Did you have brothers and sisters growing up? You can beat the crap out of your brothers and sisters inside the house. But if somebody picks on your brothers and sisters outside of the house, you beat the crap out of them. That's how the world works. And that's how politics is supposed to work. And that has been an unwritten rule of Western democracies since forever. You don't go and air your dirty laundry. You don't go and attack the other party. But Justin Trudeau can't help himself. And so today, when he's speaking at Canada 2020, and we still haven't seen enough stories about their odd fundraising arrangements, he came out and, you know, had to take a shot yet again at Stephen Harper 
while talking about terrorists getting their citizenship back. And it came to the point where in one of our largest debates, I was standing on stage against uh, the, the former prime minister, and he was telling people that I was willing to stand up and restore the citizenship of the one uh, Canadian who, under this law, had had his citizenship taken away. And he knew he had me on that one. I'm actually standing there defending the right of a Canadian stripped of a citizenship for a terrorist to become, once again, a Canadian citizen. And I stood there and I defended that principle that you should not be able to take away the citizenship from anyone. And our government will be, uh, because we reversed that law, uh, restoring the citizenship to someone who is convicted of terrorism in Canada. And that's, I mean, that's a perfect narrative for the politics of fear and aggression, and yet it's me sitting here as Prime Minister of Canada and not Stephen Harper. <laughs> Everybody laughed at that. There was a big laugh track, and we don't have time to play for it, but let me just say, Justin Trudeau once again took a shot at Stephen Harper. It's like he doesn't realize he won the election. He did the same thing he went, when he went to Britain and did an interview with the BBC and took shots at Stephen Harper. He won the election, people. He is the Prime Minister of Canada. He no longer needs to be taking shots at the guy he beat last October, but he can't help himself because Justin Trudeau is not a classy man. There are many good things I can say about him. He is a devoted husband and father, as best I can tell. But he has zero class when it comes to partisanship. And he says that he does not want to engage in the politics of fear and division and class warfare and partisanship. And I can sit here for the next hour and tell you why that's not true. And maybe that's what we'll do after the break. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. I thought that if I was speaking to you tonight about Donald Trump, I'd be speaking about the fact that his campaign manager is accused of attacking a conservative journalist, someone I've interviewed before named Michelle Fields. Instead, there is complete mayhem in Chicago right now. We go live to CNN where Donald Trump is on the phone after one of his campaign rallies was shut down in Chicago due to violence. You know, I hope I, I certainly don't do that. I will say we've had tremendous success with people. You see the kind of polls, you see the kind of, you know, popularity that we have in the rallies themselves is love. I mean, it's a love fest in the rallies themselves. It's, Nobody's ever seen anything like it. You've been reporting about it. Well, let me just read Time magazine. Let me just and read there's, something. There's, there's great love, Don. Let me just finish by saying, there's great love in those big stadiums. There's great love there. But there are protests at the same at... Time, at the same time when there's a clash or a potential clash like tonight. I think I did the right thing. I, you know, I met, I came here and I met with law enforcement and I said, "What do you think?" And they're very professional and they said. It would be better not to do it because if you do it tonight, you could have a clash and people could get hurt. I didn't want to see people get hurt. I heard you say, I heard your tone was different last night at the debate. 
uh, much more uh, presidential. You said that you wanted to be uh, a uniter in chief, rather a divider in chief. What happened at this rally tonight certainly wasn't a love fest, as you have said. You know, there was a lot of love in the past. And I'm going to tell you some of your own words. You have said at your rallies that uh, people should knock the crap out of a protester, that you'd pay the legal fees. You talked about people being brought out on stretchers. Also, you said that you'd like uh, uh, to punch a protester in the face. You've insulted all, you've, you've insulted all kinds of people, according to, to what people believe, by saying that Mexico is sending over uh, rapists, uh, that Muslims uh, shouldn't be allowed in this country, there should be a moratorium for a while. Do you, re you regret saying any of those things, especially the things that you have said about punching protesters, sending them out on stretchers? No, I don't regret it at all. Some of these protesters were violent. Uh, they were swinging. They were hitting people. And they were really doing damage. And frankly, the crowd turned on them or the police turned on them. In most cases, it was the police. Uh, and I, I would absolutely, on occasion, usually I say, please don't hurt them. Please take it easy. Because, you know, being elevated and being, you know, looking down at an audience, usually I'm higher than the audience for, so they can see. What happens is I'm able to see the protesters. I'm able to see what's going on. And, you know, generally speaking, it's very mild. But on occasion, and the occasions that you said, I saw very, very uh, strong, very violent protesters hitting people. And, yeah, I'm not, I'm not happy about that. And I would always express my feelings about that. And Our reporters frankly, who follow uh, you, ago, Mr. Trump, and who have been very fair with you, have said, have said that they have not seen protesters attacking anyone. If, any, if anything, it is the other way around, that protesters are being attacked um, after they start to protest or to in any way disagree with you. Uh, but they're not, protesters are not the ones who, who result to, resort to violence first. It is your it's supporters total, who are doing totally, it. It's totally, you know it's not true when you say that statement, Don. You know it's not true. It's absolutely I don't know it's false. not true. That's why I'm asking. They'll, they'll stand up and they'll start swinging at people. It's not all cases, very seldom. I mean, 10% of the cases. But you, we have some very, we've had some very rough dudes as protesters. We had one that... His voice was like Pavarotti, Luciano Pavarotti, and he was a tough guy, and he was swinging and hitting people. And then people turned on him and started swinging at him, and ultimately they were successful, and we got bad publicity for it. It wasn't their fault. I mean, this guy was a pretty tough cookie and, and a very loud guy. I don't mind the loud, but he was, he was very violent. And the next day it was like he was this innocent little lamb, and I saw what happened. He was very violent. So... We don't go in there first. They start, and usually it's not us anyway, Don. Usually it's the police. I mean, we have police forces all over the country who have done a fantastic job, but usually it's the police force. Well, so the, 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 the protesters will say, well, that's only highlighting why they're there protesting about the police is that police are being heavy-handed in their communities and now are being heavy-handed at your rallies. So it seems to be making their case if that is indeed what you're saying right now. Well, let me, let me just say, let me tell you how unfair things are. Like, I'm watching CNN right now, and I have seen the same scene on CNN for the last hour and a half. Uh, the same, you know, in other words, you take the worst scene. Uh, if you really look at it, if you really want to look at it, most of the people have dispersed, and we made a great decision not to have the rally. But you continuously show the same scene of the guy in the green jacket taking a swing at somebody else, and all of the, I've been watching it for the last hour, more than an hour. Of course we and do, think, and there's you know, a distinction be, about... I mean, you're covering so. it live. And, Don, you shouldn't be showing 
the same one scene over and over and over again. You should be showing it live. Well, what we're doing because is showing an example shows, no, of the violence that happens. Just as when you're on a campaign on the campaign trail, you use examples of the worst of things in order to make a point. And so now yeah, we're looking you don't live. Have anything, but you don't have anything saying that it's not live. And, and frankly, it says Donald Trump speaks live with Don. Okay, so but, this, you know, you're, you're looking showing, at right now is live. You're showing a scene that took place two hours ago, Don, and it's not good reporting. It's not fair. What you're Everyone's looking at right dispersed. now is live, Mr. Trump. This is live. These are the streets of Chicago right outside. Live. Yeah, but yeah. if you look at that, that's a very small portion of the people. Yeah. Most of them have been uh, dispersed. So and just to be clear, I want to ask you. They're safe. There's very few people hurt. And we should be given credit for that. We made a very wise decision as opposed to going forward, you know, leaving and postponing it for another time. It was a wise decision. Now, at the same time, all of the Trump supporters have been really treated unfairly because First Amendment says we have a right to speak. I mean, we have a friendly rally. We have a right to speak. And we were stopped from having that right of freedom of are you going to propo- are so, you going to postpone every rally because of the threat of protesters? Well, would you like me to have them done and you would like to see people killed? I'm just asking you the question. Are you going to do it? I don't know. It depends on a, a case by case. But I mean, if you'd like me to have them and people would have been hurt very badly tonight. I mean, again, I'm looking at I'm looking at scenes that, uh, you know, just a little this while is live. Ago, Mr. They're, Trump, they're you're looking at hours. these are live no, scenes. No, I'm, I'm talking about. I've been watching all these scenes okay. so many times ago, and they're two hours old. Mr. Trump, Before I have to ask really you just nice for clarification. Scene, most, of them, most of the people have been dispersed, and we've been given great credit, and law enforcement gave us great credit for making the right decision. Mr. Trump, I have to ask you just for clarification. You have no regrets about anything that you have said. We have had great success. We have, had, we have fantastic support, and we have fantastic supporters. We have said wrong things when people were wrong. When people, when people were wrong, we have said some very, very strong things. Now, getting back to before tonight, when I talk about illegal immigration, I have no regrets whatsoever. If I didn't bring up illegal immigration, it wouldn't even be a subject of the campaign, Don. Mm-hmm. It's become a very, very important subject. And if I didn't bring it up, people wouldn't even be talking about it. And frankly, it's, it's really hurting our country badly in a lot of ways. From a crime standpoint and from an economic standpoint and from a drug standpoint, drugs are pouring into our country through the southern border. It's hurting our country very, very badly. So if you think I should say, oh, gee, it's too bad I brought up the problem of illegal immigration at our southern border in particular, uh, I am not at all. I'm very proud. What about in particular the things that you have said in rallies about taking them out on stretchers and that sort of thing? Do you have any regrets about what you've said about protesters? These were bad no, I don't have regrets because these were very, very bad uh, protesters. These were bad dudes. They were very rough, tough guys, and they did a lot of damage before they were taken out. And they weren't taken out on stretchers, frankly. Mm-hmm. They weren't. They ended up doing damage. They, nobody talks about them. Nobody, nobody mentions when the protester is a violent protester, and that happens. And it happens not often, but it happens. And when it does... I I will talk about that protester much differently than I talk about most where we just have fun. Okay, I have to ask you this. All right, you are listening to Donald Trump speaking live with Don Lemon on CNN. Donald Trump's rally in Chicago was supposed to go on tonight. It was canceled. Now, it was canceled several hours ago due to violence by protesters. I've been in the middle of protests. You want to talk to me about what it's like 
I'm looking at a live feed on my computer from the Chicago Tribune. I'm looking at CNN. I think they've gone back to stock footage instead of live uh, coverage. Donald Trump wisely called them out and said, you're not showing live coverage. You're showing the same guy in the same green jacket. And as he said, you're showing the same guy in the same green jacket. The guy in the green jacket was actually on the air, and it was two hours old. So Trump called them out on it. Good on him. You guys know I'm not a Trump fan, but good on him for calling him out on that. I've been at enough violent protests from riots in Montreal over the the G20, riots here in Ottawa covering for CFRA, the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City, the G20 in Toronto where I watch cars burn in the street, to know how these things generally go. It was not the Trump supporters that started this violence tonight. Alan West, former congressman out of Florida, a black Republican from Florida, before this even started tonight, had posted on how, um, where is this? Let me find it. Chris Brown, the singer, the rapper, Chris Brown, the guy known most famously for beating the crap out of Rihanna, was out saying, we have to get out there at Trump rallies and start something. He did a profanity-filled tirade on social media today on how people have to get out there and make trouble at Trump rallies. And look at what happened. There's trouble at a Trump rally. A guy known for beating the crap out of Rihanna and other women. It's not the only, Rihanna's not the only woman he beat that snot out of. He's beaten up other girlfriends. But hey, he's a celebrity, so it's okay. He was out there saying, there's too much violence at Trump rallies. We got to go create some. Well, now it's happened. And you just heard Donald Trump talking with Don Lemon. Now, Don Lemon, uh, there are certain things I disagree with Don Lemon on, but he is one of the most fair interviewers at CNN. He called out Trump on some things. And Donald fudged the truth on them. But for the most part, this is not Trump's fault. We'll open the phone lines about this. We'll open the phone lines about the Disney prince and his trip to Washington after the break. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm going to keep monitoring, monitoring this. We'll bring you more after the break. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, if you got to spend a Friday night watching news, I guess a riot's not a bad way to go. Pretty sure I can still remember the first time I saw a police on horseback charging towards me, swinging a baton, ready to crack skulls. It was in Montreal, outside the Sheraton Center in downtown. And uh, I think it was Ben O'Hara Burn. He might still be with CTV. He was their London bureau chief for a long time. I think it was Ben O'Hara Burn that got me out of the way. 
and uh, I was not with the, the Bell Media family, as it's called now. Uh, I was with the competing media. Like, he just told me the cops were coming, and they were looking to crack skulls. So that's what's happening in Chicago right now. Police on horseback, police in yellow vest trying to keep the peace outside of a Trump rally. I don't think these people realize that causing this sort of rally is actually going to help Trump. Right now, the man should be answering the fact that his campaign manager grabbed and physically assaulted a reporter of a very friendly media outlet. A media outlet that, by the way, I've written for, Breitbart.com. It's named for the late Andrew Breitbart. And Breitbart has become what many call Trump-Bart. They're that friendly to Donald Trump. I've got a friend that writes for them, Ben Shapiro. If he writes something that is not friendly to Donald Trump, do you think it goes up right away? Probably not. But they are very Trump-friendly. And yet, one of their reporters, Michelle Fields, gets assaulted at a Trump rally by Trump's campaign manager. And Breitbart turns around and starts writing stories against their own person. That's what they should be answering for today. But instead, you've got violent leftists out in the streets of Chicago trying to shut down a Trump rally. And they were successful in it because Donald Trump, for whatever problems I have with him, rightly said, you know what, this is an issue. We can't go ahead. We have to shut it down. And they did. And now there's riots in the streets. You've got ambulances running up and down. You've got police on horseback. All of this happening. And you heard Trump earlier, minutes ago, here on 580 CFRA. This is only going to help him. And these fools that want to stop him don't realize it. Maybe because they are fools. John in Arnprior, you're on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Uh, I look at the United States, and it's so much more interested than Canada right now. And it's not sunny ways and sunny days. It's very interesting down there. It, what's happening in the United States is interesting? It's interesting because there is a left and a right. There is not a left and a right in Canada. I, I, I would disagree with that. There's a right in Canada, but it's it's like it's not like in the U.S. where they have uh, the Republicans and Democrats, and they are poles apart in what they do. Well, we we up here, I think, in Canada, we're like wishy-washy. They're not wishy-washy in the U.S. Uh, look, there's wishy-washy in the United States as well. I've interviewed uh, and scrummed Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush well, was Jeb wishy-washy. Bush like, oh my God, Jeb Bush. He, he is a good man. I don't I don't dispute that for a moment. He's a good man. I can't man. understand why he didn't do better. He, he just looked like he was lost at any debate. Well, because he was, you know, as uh, Mr. Miyagi said in The Karate Kid, you walk left side, fine. You walk right side, fine. Walk middle, squish like grape. <laughs> like he that. walked the middle. Yeah. And, and that was a problem for him. But what do you think of Trump's rally being shut down tonight? I think this is only going to help him. It's and, going to help him, too. It's going to help him, yeah. You know, my, my grandparents were in Detroit for some of the uh, the riots that happened there in the late 60s. That didn't help George McGovern. 
that, <laughs> that, helped, that helped Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah. You should always be careful what you wish for because you might get it, or not wish for it, you might get it. Yeah. The left is weird because they can do anything they want to do and they think and get away with it, where the right always pushed down or criticized. Can you imagine if the right tried to shut down a, a Hillary Clinton riot? Or, a, oh sorry, a Hillary Clinton God. rally with a oh riot my. like this? Oh, my God. Maybe the end of the world, like, you know, these guys are morons and Neanderthals. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but instead they're going to blame Donald Trump. Now, yeah, Tr- get- Tr- Trump has made some comments that deserve criticism, including calling out for people to beat the crap. And literally, he said, beat the crap out of the protesters. But that doesn't excuse what's happening on the streets of Chicago tonight. Reminds you of 1968. Well, those are some of the riots that my grandparents were present for. <laughs> Thanks for the call, John. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You want to have your say? Call in now. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. My apologies for earlier saying that it didn't work out too well for George McGovern. The riots that we were talking about happened in 1968. Of course, McGovern ran against Richard Nixon in 1972. In 68, it was Nixon against Hubert Humphrey for the Democrats and um, racist George Wallace, I believe formerly a Democrat, because all the good former racists were Democrats. I love this. Now the narrative is that Republicans are racists. But if you look at the history of the Klan, and this happened, it was a couple of weeks ago, Van Jones was on with someone who's a Trump supporter, which don't count me among those. Uh, And it was on CNN, and they got into an argument with the Klan and Democrats, and Van Jones would not hear of it. And people kept spreading this around. Oh, can you believe this guy claims that Democrats are racist? Yes, they freaking were. The Klansmen were mostly Democrats. There are buildings across the United States named for Robert Byrd, longtime Democratic senator. The man who helped, you know, spearhead the last softwood lumber disagreement we had with the United States. He was a freaking Democrat and a Klansman. Always remember that. The Republican Party is the party of Abe Lincoln. Maybe you didn't hear Abe Lincoln sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Hmm? Maybe you haven't heard that one of the founders of the grand old party, the GOP, the Republicans, was almost beaten to death in a stairwell of the congressional building by people that opposed the idea of ending slavery. Oh, who were they? They were Democrats. The Whigs? See, before the Republicans came along in the 1850s, it was the Democrats and the Whigs. The Democrats were very much in favor of keeping slavery going. And the Republicans, the GOP, were opposed to it. They were a new party. And the Whigs got caught in the middle, and they were wiped out. Before the 1850s, it was the Democrats versus the Whigs. Then it became the Democrats versus the Republicans. 
And guess what? African-American voters backed the Republicans from the 1850s until the 1930s, at which point, and I should have John Robson on to talk about this at some point because he knows the history very well, it was the welfare state and influential people within the African-American community saying, forget the fact that they helped free us. Now we need to turn the picture of Abe Lincoln towards the wall and back those that will give us the welfare state. So it wasn't George McGovern that was, um, you know, hurt by the race riots. It was Hubert Humphrey. It was George Wallace, former Democrat who had to end up running as a, an independent because even by 1968, the Democrats had decided that they wouldn't stick around or stand by the racists among them. But right now in Chicago, there are riots going on. It's calmed down a bit over a Trump rally. Is that Bob Beckel I see on CNN right now? Uh, Never mind about Bob Beckel. Just know that he... Just Google Bob Beckel hookers and checks. That's all you got to say. Peter, in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Yeah, good evening, Brian. I think you're doing a great job on the show here. Um, The riots happening in Chicago, my my personal theory was going to... I would personally, I wouldn't doubt if, if some of the liberal... Uh, party supporters in Canada are, are involved with that down there, but um, I think what's going to happen. To, I, <laughs> oh, I, I happen don't know about that. I mean, I love Chicago, but I wouldn't go down yeah. for a riot. Yeah, well, I think what's going to happen is that uh, Donald Trump, at one of these rallies, somewhere is going to have a Lee Harvey Oswald moment, and uh, that's going to be the end of him. And then you're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of sympathy for him, and the Republicans will be able to put in. You know their choice of you know a lighter, a lighter Republican. Well, look, um, you know my my personal choice is for Ted Cruz, and I'm open about that. Unlike a lot of people that will just blast uh, blast uh, Donald Trump, I'm open that I would prefer Ted Cruz. Yeah, and, and I and I'm not sure that you know there's anyone that can say Ted Cruz is soft on the border or soft on the issues that Trump supporters care about. He's just there's, there are reasons that I prefer him, but the fact is the media is going nuts on this, and they will go nuts on Trump for the coming days, but it's not yep. him or his supporters that have caused this violence, Peter. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you look at uh, the, uh, the, the dinner that uh, Trudeau has had down there and some of the, um, you know, uh, sophomoric comments that he's making you know it's uh oh, it's not cringeworthy but i mean it certainly gives it certainly gives somebody pause to think you know like oh it's cringeworthy okay. yeah i think you're right yeah it's it is cringeworthy i'm i i there's no question i'm right on that it's cringeworthy and uh the fact that i mean the selfie prints the disney prince is out there taking selfies with them that that should make all of us say okay are are we getting the real deal when it comes to the news media, because yeah. P- Peter, you can you can say, well, Lily is he, he he's he, he's admitted he's a conservative. Fine, that allows you to say, um, 
well, I agree with him or I disagree with him or I take what he says with a grain of salt or I view it through this lens. But when you've got reporters that are supposedly nonpartisan wetting their pants over the fact that Justin Trudeau is showing up at the White House, something I've witnessed prime ministers do in the past and they've never done this. That tells you where they stand. They're wetting their pants over the prime minister showing up at the White House. Yeah, we've got some very, very unbalanced media in Canada, and then shows like yours and uh, you know websites like the Rebel Media. It's, um, I, I hope it gathers uh, a lot more traction and steam going forward because you know the, it, we're just you know you've got the CBC News, which is basically you know the uh, the private uh, house organ, uh, house news organ <laughs> for the Liberal Party of Canada. You know the same way that CNN is uh, the house organ for the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks for the call. I can tell you that I don't even have to be in Chicago. And I've been in Chicago many times. I have family in the the suburbs of Chicago. As a youth, we used to spend every second uh, summer going down there. We had a um we had an ongoing exchange with Chicago and had soccer tournaments there, but my mother had family in Chicago. We even looked at moving there at one point. So I know the area well. But I've also been to enough riots, be they the G20 riots in Montreal, George Bush showing up in Ottawa, uh, the Quebec City riots, time and time again. It's not the police that start these things. And it is not going to be the Donald Trump supporters that started this. It will be the far fringe left that started these riots, that started the violence, and they will not be called out for it. So I will call them out now, and I will call out CNN, and I will call out MSNBC and Fox News and every other media outlet and say, when will you tell the truth about these thugs? At the riots in Quebec City for the Summit of the Americas in 2000, I, I was standing on the protesters' side of the fence and watched them throw the first projectile. That's how close I was. I was within 10 feet of the fence, a fence that was not supposed to come down. And I was reporting live on the radio when the Black Bloc and other violent elements showed up. Other media that were reporting on this were nowhere near it. In fact, I ended up on CNN television because John King and others were on lockdown inside the building. They could not get outside because the violence had happened. And I was 10 feet from the fence. And I watched the projectiles go over. And I watched the fence start to come down before the police even responded. I guarantee you that's what's happened in Chicago. It is the violent left doing this again. But Donald Trump is going to be the one that gets the blame from the mainstream media. I have no love for Donald Trump. I do not want him as the GOP nominee. I do not want him as president of the United States of America. But he is not the one in the wrong tonight. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Ivan in Ottawa. You're on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Uh, good evening. I was interested in what your uh, um, scientist author had to say in, in the uh, previous hour. This, this whole climate change thing has mm-hmm. become a mass hysteria. People are believing that man is causing global warming, that man is responsible for it, 
and they have no proof of this at all. You know, ever since man discovered fire, he's been burning wood, <laughs> sending CO2 into the atmosphere, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years. We had an ice age when man was burning wood before, during, and after. We had a medieval warming period when man was burning wood before, during, and after. None of these so-called scientists can explain why the ice age uh, started, why it ended, why, why the, uh, the global warming period uh, started, why it ended. Man was burning more wood at the end of the global warming period than before because there were more men. Simple as well, that. Uh, my, my mother, and she seems to be a recurring character on this show, uh, and uh, she's going to be a bit like um, Maris from uh, Frasier. You'll never hear her or see her, I'm supposing. Um, she grew up in, era, in an era in Britain where the, if there was fog, you were covered in black soot. Well, because pollution. there was there, there there was so much actual pollution, yeah, and there that's was so much, thing. but there was so much crap spewed into the air, Ivan, that you could physically see it. Now we're talking oh, about something that to, is odorless and colorless. London, and before noon, when I went into a pub for lunch, before noon, my collars and cuffs on a white shirt were absolutely black. <laughs> it's true, they were. There was no way to keep a clean shirt walking walking around London. And, uh, and, and now it's not that way in London. No, I know. They've cleaned it up. Yeah. Well, I, I've got a friend that's in London all the time. He's a lawyer. He's downtown, probably in the same areas that you would be. He goes over all the time for business. Yeah. He does not have that problem now. No, they fixed it. They fixed it. They got rid of a lot of the coal. But um, my point is that this mass hysteria is going to be a very expensive, very destructive thing. Mass hysterias are all pervasive. Um uh, look what happened with the uh, Hitler, Goebbels, Nazi mass hysteria in, in, in the 1930s. It caused the Second World War. Everybody lost five or six years of earning power, of fun. A lot of people were killed. Great devastation. There's still old Jews who've grown up without any family left. They were all killed. Mm-hmm. They're still suffering the effects of this. Uh, and as much as Justin Trudeau was on earlier tonight, and I played clips of him talking about, you know, fighting back against those that would take citizenship away. By the way, um, he is still in the middle of trying to strip away citizenship from old Nazis, but <laughs> will not take citizenship away from those that would blow us up right now. This, this mass hysteria is, is very expensive. Uh, probably the cheapest one that we've gone through was the Y2K hoax, where, where people <laughs> were told that their computers were not going to were going to freeze up. Their cars wouldn't start. Their toaster wouldn't work. There wouldn't be running water. All that. All that. Well, I, I don't know if you were on Parliament Hill for 1999 into 2000, Ivan, but the only thing that Y2K caused was for them to screw up the the countdown from yep. 10 to 1. Some of the numbers were out of order. Some of them were sideways. That could have been Y2K. It could have been drinking. I'm not sure. The whole thing was a hoax. It only cost a few hundred million dollars for people who were duped. But this, this mass hysteria is going to be very expensive, and there is no excuse for people believing in this mass hysteria. These, these so-called climate experts have never accomplished anything, and we are supposed to believe that they are going to be able to control the temperature of the entire surface of the Earth forever. They have never stopped a hurricane. They have never stopped one of these torrential downpours of rain that we get in Ottawa, which yep. flush our sewers into the, the uh, river. They've never been able to divert either a, um, a hurricane or a rainstorm. They've never been able to cause a rainstorm to occur over a forest fire or over a drought-stricken area. They have zero accomplishments. 
that uh, at least the Nazis had some accomplishments. Uh, well, I'm I'm not going to get into that. And well, look, they had, uh, uh, you know, and that's why people believed them. They'd stopped inflation, which which had been horrible for twenty for uh, um, ten years during the Weimar Republic. It took a suitcase of Deutschmarks to buy a loaf yeah, of bread. Fine, fair they, enough, but I, I I'm not going to. They well, made well, the trains run, and they built the first autobahn, which was a superhighway when when other countries were still trying to convert from dirt roads to tarmac, at least the German people had some excuse for why they believed the Nazis. And, and there's no, no excuse, excuse to believe for this. believing these so-called climate experts because they have no accomplishments. All right, got to leave it there. I'm up against the break. Thanks for the call, Ivan. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. We'll see what happens in the next three minutes with Donald Trump and his rally. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. There's a few pumped up kicks on the streets of Chicago tonight. Some rallies, some riots. Rally for Donald Trump being canceled and... um, You will hear over the next few days blame being placed upon Donald Trump. There's some truth in that. Donald Trump, when protesters have shown up, have told people to, he's told people to beat the crap out of protesters and that he will pay for their legal bills. That's not the wisest wisest words for a candidate to utter. Not at all. But he said those things. But he is not to blame for what happened in Chicago tonight. I'm watching CNN right now, and they're showing the video of Michelle Fields, a reporter from Breitbart, who says that it was Donald Trump's campaign manager, a man with a reportedly explosive temper, who was the one that grabbed her, grabbed her hard enough that her arm was bruised. That's what Donald Trump should be dealing with tonight. But instead, it's leftist protesters who have shut down one of his rallies with the threats of violence. I've experienced this far too many times to know that that it is anything but. Guy, end up in the Capital Voice, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, good evening, Brian. I just uh, wanted to bring up a couple of months ago, a uh, red-haired reporter was roughed around by some union thugs that That, were brought in. You wouldn't uh, be talking about me, would you? uh, No, that's my bromate, Brian Lilly. Okay. Yeah. Brian, I watched you get basically pushed around and mauled by about four or five security thugs when 20 to 30 buses were bussed in from the union quid pro quo that... uh, Lord Faltermoy sponsored for that cops presentation for uh, David Suzuki and his mm-hmm. delusional speech about Japanese interns being uh, segregated. It was just unbelievable. Even some of the people in the crowd were looking at, at each other going, is, am I here? Suzuki was so delusional. But you know what really gets me about your whole point, Brian? Organized protesters. The left knows how to do it so well. There's already unconfirmed reports on the Internet, Brian. I can't confirm them right now. But those 54 jets that met in, Sor- uh, in the, the island down south for mm-hmm. the tech conference, 
and George Soros, and uh, it's it's game time. And I'll tell you, these people are really scared about Trump. And I agree with that other uh, gentleman who called in earlier. I think he's going to have a Lee Harvey Oswald moment before September, October. Well, I, 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 I really, I, I no, hope, I really I hope not. Worry for him. I really worry for uh, for the, the Trump. I don't support it, him. Look, um, I was a Carly Free Free person, uh, and then you know a, a Rubio person, but they both flamed out. The the fact is, uh, it, the Secret Service do take any threats against them. Uh, my buddy Stu Bergier, who uh, works alongside Glenn Beck, Glenn was joking about stabbing Stu on the air one day because yeah. Stu was bugging him. Mm-hmm. Trump's campaign manager started tweeting out that he was threatening to stab Trump. The Secret Service showed up to interview Glenn Beck at CPAC. Uh, he was, and anyone that listens to the show and knows the rapport between these two guys, he was threatening Stu. It's like, you know, you're bugging me. If I was close enough, I'd stab you. Well, remember so they take these threats seriously, and uh, and they'll do it. But if anyone wants to see what guy's talking about, you just Google David Suzuki, Brian Lilly, and that will be the first thing that shows up is David David Suzuki's union-hired thugs roughing me up uh, uh, back on uh, around November 30th or so. That is correct. All right. Thanks for the call, Guy. We'll chat soon. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to check out more of what was said by Patrick Moore? You want to know the truth about carbon and all of that? We started off the 8 o'clock hour with him, brianlilly.com. You want to see more about Justin Trudeau and how unserious he is? The rebel.media. We'll be back Monday. I'm Brian Lilly. This is News Talk 580 CFRA.